listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I am the host of the show. The guest on episode 43 of Feel Free to Deviate is Eric Mead. What does he do? It would be more appropriate to ask, what doesn't he do? At the moment, and maybe for the foreseeable future, he's teaching young people the ins and outs of rigging for 3D animation. As cool as that sounds, it's not the only reason I asked him to be on the show. Eric is the pivot master. He has a few degrees and many qualifications. He's familiar with somewhere around 15 languages, some more than others, and he constantly gains new skills through practical experience or educational programs. He only does things that he enjoys or finds interesting, and I believe that's a good policy, especially if you plan on spending 40 plus hours per week doing something. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that everyone has the capacity, time, or means to live this lifestyle. He does, and I deeply admire his attitude about self-enrichment. And regardless of whether you can relate to him or not, we could all take a page from his book, even if only on a micro level. I'm going to keep the intro super short, and we can talk more after this conversation with Eric Mead. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, I'm so like... You know, punch me in the face, I'll probably just like walk away. I'm just like <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, I definitely <laughs> But I, I definitely prefer not to get punched in the face or pun get punched in the face. Well I just I'm just lucky. I'm I'm six two, so I don't get punched in the face very very often. Yeah, me Most too. Most people can't reach. Yeah. You know? I also I personally I, I feel like a lot of people think I look mean. Oh yeah? Yeah, they just like they're like, Oh that guy looks angry, so I'm not gonna mess with him. I'm just more clueless. That's something I've <laughs> I've noticed all throughout my life. Like people have later on told me that people were trying to get me to fight them or trying to bother me or trying <laughs> to rile me up. And I'm like, what? Oh, I just thought he was kind of dumb. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and I literally there's at least three cases where people told me that that person was trying to push my buttons to get me to fight him. And I literally just thought there was something wrong with that person. Like they were just like really <laughs> dumb or crazy or just stupid or just naive. Or I was just like, that could have been the case as well. Well, I do think that was the case. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure why you'd want to fight me, but no. And, and I guess that's just kind of part of my personality. I'm, I'm a little clueless about people's uh, manipulative intentions and, and, you know, things like that, especially when it comes to stuff that I don't, consider valuable like violence and fighting you know i, I guess i just missed the missed the point <laughs> which is good it's worked out well for me i definitely have but it's been a long time and it was never dramatic and yeah it wasn't like in the movies yeah and I, and i think it's weird too like like when i see people fighting you know they'll like punch each other a couple times and then back off and then stop and i'm like what was the point of that yeah there like, no I point guess, i guess part of the reason i don't see fighting as anything valuable is like, I, it just seems misdirected to me. Cause like, say you're upset about like someone stole your money and now you punch him in the face. Like the pain still don't have your money. Equal money. Yeah. Like <laughs> that wouldn't make me feel better at all. Like nope. what would make me feel better is if they gave me my money. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you, um, why don't you introduce yourself? And I know that you're a man of many talents and many skills and many careers. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but, but well, thank I you. would, and Sounds I just nice. did. <laughs> well, especially the many careers part. That's something I probably have never had. But well, my name's Eric. Um, what do you want to know in terms of an introduction? I don't know. Or because you've done so many things, and also because this is what I ask everybody to say on the show when somebody says, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" What do you What do you say? For a long time, I never knew what to say, and I would say things like. I'm an independent contractor. I'm a, I'm an artist. Uh, I'm, I'm always a student. So I generally say I'm a student quite often because I'm always pretty much always been taking at least one class constantly um, with few, with a few gaps here and there, mostly because I wasn't in a place where I could. But recently I actually have been employed as a uh, adjunct professor. So I'm actually teaching now. Oh, that's so cool. Now I just say I'm, I'm a teacher. I say I'm a, I teach at a couple universities within this area, and um, I teach uh, animation is what I say, but I technically I really teach rigging, uh, but most people don't know 
know what that is, so I just say animation. All right. Well, why don't you why don't you tell uh, the good people that listen to this program what rigging is? I know what it is, but yeah, well, it was was uh, probably twenty twenty five years ago. I okay. started getting interested in. Um, well, I, I was in school for computer science at the time because I thought I was going to get into artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And long story short, I ended up taking a course that was more of a collaborative studio. And I was really drawn to putting the 3D graphics elements together so they work together. And that's kind of what rigging is. It's taking the model and you build the controls on the model so that the animators can then animate that model. So when I get it, the model is a static lump of sort of virtual clay, right? I put on the controls and the systems and some of them can be very simple and some of them can be quite complex. And then the animator now has nice, easy to use controls that actually move the character. And uh, so what's fun about it for me is that I'm the first one that sees the character move. Uh-huh. So like like Shrek, for example, a lot of people are familiar with Shrek. You know, when when the when the riggers got Shrek, it was just a static gray Shrek character. And <laughs> they got to see his arm raised for the first time and that kind of stuff. So, yep. Um, so it's a little bit of art. It's a little bit of engineering. It's kind of everything combined uh and that's what's fun like you you end up having to be a little bit of a modeler and a little bit of an animator and a little bit of a programmer and a little bit of a designer a little bit of an engineer and that's what i like like i i like you know different things learning different skills and things like that so it's a perfect spot for me yes but that's what rigging is i always tell people it's putting the strings on the marionette that's a good way to describe it and sometimes that sounds boring to people and they would hate rigging well, they'd, they'd probably hate it because I'm sure that it's rather tedious, but it can be, yeah. They, I, you know, people like the results. And, you know, they, they have all these shows that show aspects of that now on TV. Like I, I saw this show with Andy Serkis being the, the motion capture guy for the Neanderthal. They built a Neanderthal. Like mm. they did all the studying and they found out exactly the proportions and the, the muscle build and the facial characteristics. They modeled his face and everything, and then they hooked it all up to Andy Circus. So that you get to see some of the rigging aspect of it in a program like that. And I think that that sort of thing is becoming more and more mainstream or people are more and more aware of it. Whereas before, a couple of nerds probably knew about it, and now it's on Discovery Channel. <laughs> yep. Well, and it, and it is really, it's really interesting. The process of building it is often less interesting for people, but like just when you see it working and stuff, it's, it's almost magical, you know, suddenly this thing's moving around, dancing around and, and it's fun too, because a lot of times it, you know, things break and they don't work right. And so, you know, you go, you've probably seen these in, on those types of shows where they show you when they, you know, they, they animated it one way. And when they went and rendered out the, the video, it's like, you know, his head flew off or his eyes yeah. went inside out or something. Or his like arm that. like flipped out or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that happens all the time, right? Cause you, you're trying to figure out how to control that arm and the, you know, your first thing didn't quite work. It spun it off, uh, you know, around his head. And then, you know, maybe your second or third thing that you came up with worked. And so I, I think it's more interesting than animating personally, but then I don't really like animating. It's a little tedious <laughs> for me. But it's true. Not not that many people like rigging. It is too, I think because it's in the middle. And this is something that I've always found kind of interesting uh, because I've always been a, like when I heard the phrase Drack of all trades when I was little, I was like, yeah, that's what I want to be. You know? Yeah. And then, then I found out it was supposed to be an insult. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, going back to being naive about people picking a fight with me, like mm-hmm. someone would call me that and I'd take it as a compliment. <laughs> that's right. I am a Jack of all trades. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's kind of what rigging is. And, and I find people, a lot of people don't like that. They want to be an expert in something and be really good at it and have that be the only thing they have to do or think about until they get a chance to go home and have dinner and then go to sleep. I think of myself as a jack of all trades as well. And historically it served me well, but now I feel like in the job market, it's not serving me as well as it used to, maybe because I'm older now. Yeah, well, I think that happens when when you get older. And also, I feel like the world culture is going more and more toward hyper specificity. Yeah, for real. You know, and like I definitely notice it where I live now where it's, you know, it's very tech friendly city and people are very quick to label you, you know, oh, you're a rigger. Yeah. Right. That's it. Or you're an animator or you're a modeler. And, you know, like in, in the school where I teach, like the students have to take a little bit of everything, but they very early 
label themselves and like the like the faculty and everybody really encourages that right like oh no you're an animator what are you doing taking rigging yeah like, well it's required oh well but you're an animator yeah but you're a student as well yeah <laughs> you gotta you gotta learn yeah. this stuff <laughs> yeah but that that culture of labeling yourself on your specific task starts really early now like yeah i feel like that at least the way i was brought up it, that wasn't such a push you know it was like yeah go do a few things figure out what you want and then you know maybe you'll specialize or maybe you won't you know whatever right and, uh, but yeah, now it's like everybody's hyper specialized. Well, what was what was that like? You you when when you were growing up, because you do have a sort of unique background, and I I, I have no idea what your parents are like. <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you want to explain your unique background, which facilitates your educational uh, forays into this, that, and everything, and uh, the other thing? I, I doubt it's that unique, really. I mean, my my dad was was very business-like you know he was like you should get an undergraduate degree and then go to grad school and then get in a company and stay in that company for 50 years you know because that's what he did for the for the family business that's exactly what he did oh okay he never looked back very pretty conservative my mom on the other hand the first 30 to 30 40 maybe years of her life was like that maybe 30 and then uh began to branch out and she became a psychologist ultimately, and she was very interested in people's behavior and you know all that kind of stuff. And so she, you know, she was probably the first one that said to me, "Do what you love, and the money will follow. Mm -hmm. Like, don't worry about it. Like, do something you like." And that was really the way I was brought up by my mom. And then I spent more time with my mom after they they ended up getting divorced because they were pretty <laughs> clearly not the same kind different of people. people. But, <laughs> yeah, and and I think it was a good thing to be honest. But yeah, so I ended up spending probably more time with my mom and I was definitely more influenced in that way. And so she was very like, do whatever you want. And, but she was also a thinker and an, and an academic, you know, really instilled in me learning and, and reading and languages, things like that. Um, when you, like even at an early age. Yeah. I mean, like, but also creativity. Like, so I, I always tell this story, like, I'll never forget. I was pretty young, probably eight, maybe. And I was coloring a color book and I was, I came across an owl and I guess I'd never seen an owl or something. And I said to my mom, like, oh, what color is an owl? I want to color this owl. And she just looks at me and goes, whatever color you want it to be. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, no, I get it, mom. I can do whatever I want. I get it. But like, what color are real owls so that I can like, you know, decide if I want to do the real owl color or not. And she just looked at me and said, whatever color you want it to be. And like, refused to tell me what color an owl was. And I kept pressing it, and at least my memory, I might have made this up, but she would have said something like this, if you want to know what color an owl is, go look it up. <laughs> and so it was both this, like, you know, creativity, free will, but also learn how to figure your own stuff out and learn something. You know, and that was just kind of the way she was. Like, it was really irritating because, you know. <laughs> no, but it's, it, like, that's really good. Oh, she was great that way. Like. But, you know, you can you can imagine as an eight year old, you're like, oh, man, just tell me brown. I just want to know brown. Right. <laughs> like, I'm, I might still use the purple crayon, mom, but I've never seen I a did. purple owl. But, um, well, I make a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I color a good one. I'm not a particularly good drawer. So what was your high school experience like? Were you, were you a good student or were you just all over the place? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I my parents lucked out with me, at least. Um, I was a good student. I liked school. You know, I did well in, well, I guess pretty much everything. I think I think I didn't do so well initially in handwriting. Okay. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I think I think it was like first grade or something, and I got like a D on handwriting. <laughs> I didn't know they graded that. I, back then they did, and then <laughs> there was like this weird, and this I don't know how it happened, but I'm pretty sure it did. They had this weird competition where we would try to do our best and they'd send it to the company that I guess designed the original cursive system that they would use in our curriculum. Whoa. And they would judge it. And I somehow like won that or like oh. came in pretty high. And I'm like, I get a D in handwriting, but I get like, you know, top three of the school in this competition or something like that. Dude, like, industry standard. I know. It's so weird. So. I can't even say I did that poorly in handwriting because at the end of the day, I won a competition, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so, so I, yeah, I did, I did pretty well in school. I liked school a lot, which is 
as a teacher, now I realize that, you know, I guess I, I was more unique in that way than I thought that I liked learning. I liked exploring things. You know, there were numerous moments in, in school where the teachers kind of misunderstood my curiosity and they thought I was just trying to be a punk. Yeah. And they'd, they'd like give us more homework and I'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and then the other students would just glare at me and I'm like, what? No, really? <laughs> this stuff's fun. Right. And they'd always be like, so, you know, I was, I was that guy. But I, again, I was kind of naive. I didn't see that everyone else didn't want to do that or didn't like it. I just thought, well, hey, this is interesting. If you excel in, in this environment, then yeah, it's, you know, it's just, it takes all different types. There are like some people don't, don't excel in that environment. So you can see how they might not be super excited about extra work. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that now. And, and I try to bring that to, to my teaching because I'm like, you know, not everybody likes this. And sometimes you just have to, you know, creep up on things. You can't. Yeah. But it's a little different in your situation, right? You're in a, they're paying to go there. It's not like normal high school. Like they chose to go and study this stuff, right? You would think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on, honestly, sometimes I, I'm not so sure. I mean, a lot of people get kind of pushed into college. Oh, um, well, yeah, that's for sure. By their parents or their culture or whatever, or, uh -huh. or just this what I think is a little bit of a myth, this whole idea that, you know, everybody should go to college and everybody's going to make more money if they do. And, and that's just the way things should be. I mean, I think it's the worst place to be if you don't want to be there. I totally agree. And I'm very pro college. I mean, I've been in college my whole life. I know. I, still, <laughs> I tell my students all the time, I'm like, dude, you don't want to be here. This, you can, you can get a job, you know, you, and then decide to come back. You yeah. Know, but people feel very rushed, especially I feel in America. There's this idea, you know, four years, get in, get out, do it as mm -hmm. fast as you can after high school and then get into your career and stay there, you know, and, and keep moving and just keep going, going, going. And I'm like, I don't know, I think maybe take a couple. Some of the best students that I run into didn't go to college initially, spent a couple of years in the workforce and decided that there were things they'd rather do that they were having trouble doing because they didn't have degrees and then went back to a community college to clean up their grades. A there little you bit. go. And they really learn to study. Yeah. And they really learn to learn. And by the time they show up at the four year college where I teach, like they're the best students by far. That's and, what my sister know, did. Yeah. They know where they're going. They're, they're generally pretty good. And I mean, they're not all naturally good. A lot of them are just really good workers. And, no. you know, they're. But you get past, you get past the, the, the hump of the, the weird late teens, early 20s, where you just want to party and hang out and you're experiencing freedom theoretically right. for the first time in your life. And, yeah. you know, instead of being told, oh, this is what you need to do, maybe you have a taste for what you actually like doing at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Focus. And I didn't have a focus, that's for sure. When I first went to college, I... I like languages, so I just went in as a as a German major because I had studied German in high school, mostly because that was the supposed to be the most challenging language my school offered. Okay. Uh, what I really was going for supposedly was film school, strangely enough, and uh, you you had to declare a major or something like that, and and you couldn't get into the film school at UCLA until your third year, and so I just declared German, and so I was like my first years, I was sort of like. I don't know. I don't really even know much about film. I didn't know if that was really something I wanted to do. I didn't yeah. know. And then that's where, um, at some point I had to take philosophy, some philosophy credits. And I was like, I, I remember distinctly feeling like I don't want to learn how other people thought before I know how I think. And I didn't really want to take philosophy because I, because I had seen people come out of philosophy classes, quoting Aristotle and thinking like Aristotle. And I was like, you're getting programmed. I don't want to get programmed. Right. And so I avoided taking philosophy. And then I found that linguistics was considered a philosophy credit. And so I was like, okay, I'll take that. What's linguistics? And I really <laughs> literally didn't know. <laughs> and I got in. And to be honest, that's probably, you know, my passion in, in life is linguistics and languages. And I was just like, I didn't know you could study language as a, as a science, right? As a field. I'm like, this is awesome. And it had all like sort of callbacks to mathematics and callbacks to programming style stuff. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I super got into that. But when I started college, I didn't know. It was almost a wasted time. I mean, except that I was interested in learning. So it was a great environment for me. 
But if I hadn't been, it would have been the worst. I would have just floundered for a couple of years because, you know, I had no idea. Right. But yeah, linguistics is great. So anybody likes linguistics? Well, I don't know. Is that what you were studying when you when you uh, met Dave? No. So you've studied a lot of things. So my undergrad was linguistics. My second undergrad came along. That's when I met Dave. I've always been interested also in neuroscience and the brain and all that, but I didn't want to kill animals. And you, it's pretty hard to be a neuroscientist and not experiment on animals. And things oh, okay. Like that. So I just was like, I just don't want to do that. And so I always thought what would be interesting would be artificial intelligence. Like maybe you could study an artificial brain. You wouldn't have to kill animals. And I'm not saying I'm against like vivisection per se. I just don't want to be part of it. Right. You know, it's not my thing. But I understand the value and all that. But so I was always interested in, in neuroscience and psychobiology. And, and, and so artificial intelligence seemed like the way to go. But the computers were slow and, and crappy back then. Right. So it just wasn't get, it wasn't going anywhere. For anyone that knows, there was a artificial intelligence winter. <laughs> That's what they call it. Because there was a lot of hype early on. And then nothing happened for decades. <laughs> and they literally call it the AI winter. So what is it now? The AI spring? Actually, yeah. Right now it is like <laughs> booming. It's, it's so huge. And I'm, I'm actually in a graduate program now to, because I have always wanted to do this. And so I'm, I'm doing it's it. your time, man. Program. But so when I met Dave was, I, I thought I was going to get into that and I got into uh, the computer side of it and I was cleaning up some of the prereqs to get into a graduate program. Uh, and I realized again, the computers were slow and crappy and that the work itself was actually going to be really frustrating and boring because it wasn't fun. Yeah. Um, so I just decided to clean up, you know, just take, take a couple classes and actually just get another bachelor's. And so I ended up getting a BS in computer science. And that's when I took that class in that, you know, opened up animation and rigging to me because it was like, oh, well, this is actually fun. You know, it's computers, it's, it's structure and organization like linguistics, but it's actually fun because at the end of the day, I can just watch the movie. Yeah. There's like a, a, a practical, um, reason to do it. Yeah. And so that, so that's where I met Dave. That's where I, uh, got into rigging. Um, and then I didn't really do anything with it much for maybe even 10 years or so. And then I got back into it when I moved, um, to Silicon Valley, uh, because it's just, it's around, it's everywhere. Right. Yeah, just got back into it and started teaching uh, the past five years. I've been teaching it. And now I'm even considering uh, maybe even doing a full-time teaching gig. And we'll see. I don't know. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, so what's the list? What's the what's the list of skills? I, I, I seem to recall, I, I think in the email that I sent you, I, I mentioned the Chinese, German, American Sign Language, Working well, in the prison the, system, <laughs> what, like there's just like a huge list of things that you've done. Oh, glass blowing. Yeah, well, glass blowing was what I was doing in Seattle when I went back to school for computer science. So, like I said, I'm always in in a class or a program, and a lot of times I just join a program because I figure if I'm gonna take all these classes, I might as well get some paper to to show for it at the end of it. Okay. Plus, programs make you fill in the gaps. You know, it's really easy to learn something just on, on your own and you only learn what you want to learn. Yeah. And then you don't really know the field. You don't really know a lot. So like right now, I'm actually in a course as part of my graduate program that I'm, I'm kind of burnt out on, but it's good for me. Like it's a very important aspect of artificial intelligence and I might have skipped out on it if it were just oh. me, right? So the program really helps with structure and helps keep you going. And that's always been difficult for me because I've been able to kind of do different things and I didn't need to pursue a certain structure. And so I, I do often put myself in situations where, you know, the structure takes me places. For example, the sign language brought me to the prison system. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> because I got myself into a program and the next step was interpreter training. So then the next step was a an internship. And this was all just like I was taking classes because I'm always interested in languages. That was it. I was learning sign language. Yeah. You know, I just followed it into the internship in the prison and they gave me the internship because sign language interpreters are almost all women. Yep. And very few men. And the prison needs interpreters for whatever reason. Not a lot of the women in my class were really interested in that particular internship. And the instructor right. sort of looked at me, a big guy, and said, you should probably do this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, OK, you know, so I, I did. And 
and it was great. And for about two years, I was uh, um, not full time, but I was uh, uh, an interpreter uh, working the prison system, you know, for the for the deaf inmates. And uh, and I realized I actually enjoyed the prison environment more than the 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 job of interpreting. So I, I <laughs> it was the food, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, it's, it's such an interesting environment. I mean, you want to talk about learning stuff, like go hang out in a prison. Like it is a weird environment because of the, because of the inmates or because, because of, of everything, the, the... because of the culture, the inmates, the, the structure. I mean, you would talk about like structure. I mean, it's like, just, it's so bizarre. Like I remember one time one of the guards came in and there had been some issue. And so, you know, I, I don't even know what he said, but he said the word and all the inmates stood up, walked over to the wall, faced the wall and like put their hands on the wall or some, something like that. They basically yeah. like got ready to be searched and without even really saying a word. And I was just like awestruck because I'm yeah, like, that's okay, so super weird. Well, and especially because most of those people were there because they're sort of hyper independent, if you will. Right. <laughs> they're doing stuff that are against the law that are probably like not what they were told to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And here they were completely subservient to this guy who came in and said, whatever, search or something. Right. And I was just like, this is crazy. Like, I, I mean, it was chilling. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, and because I, I was the only one sitting because I was the non inmate in the room. So I was just still sitting there going just watching yeah and i was like am i supposed to stand up like oh my god like i don't now i feel like the criminal like i'm the one not doing everything right right like, what's going on and feel like you have to apologize to the guys i'm sorry guys sorry yeah yeah oh totally yeah, yeah. and and yeah it was such and it was just every day something weird like that would happen and it was just so like just wow these this is these people's lives in reality yeah and and you know i'm always interested in like with the languages comes cultures and different people and stuff. So I'm always interested in, in different environments, different lives, different ways people interact. And, and that's even something I find with teaching. You know, I, I run into all these students from so many different backgrounds. It's like, you just learn so much from, from all these different people. Sure. Um, but the languages, I'm always studying language. So I think, I think I'm up to like 15 at this point. I mean, and you most feel of them, proficient in all those 15 or in, Oh, no, 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 no. How many? <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. I'm fluent in English. Okay. That's all yeah. I can really say I'm right like fluent in. I think I'm okay in, in uh, at least I, I, in the past, was okay in Chinese, German, Swedish. Uh, I was pretty good in Arabic, but I think I've lost a lot of that uh, at this point. And then uh, Russian, I was good at. I, I actually went and lived in Russia for three or four months studying Russian and China for a couple times, totaling about a year and a half. And then uh, Sweden, I, I was over there working for about a year. Why? Well, that's where I picked up glassblowing, oh. kind of randomly. I had, I had mentioned to a friend of mine that I studied with chi in China that I was really interested in glassblowing, always had been, but never thought it was a good thing to pursue, like, you know, for college or anything. And, and then when I, when I was heading back to the United States at one point, he, he's kind of like a network guy, right? So he calls me, he's like, oh man, I met this guy on a boat and he's like a glassblower. <laughs> and so I told him that you should call him. And so he's, here's his number. And I was like, what? All right, cool. That's weird. Like, what the heck? And kind of on a lark, I think I was even stuck on a layover. I think I was in a hotel, like waiting for a plane or something like that. I actually think it was in Boston, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But I called the guy and I'm like... Some guy said you might be looking for somebody to blow glass, and and I, I've tried it once, uh, but I'm really interested in it. And the guy was like, "What? Who is this? What?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "And this is a guy in Sweden, right?" Right. And I'm I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. Do you, would you be interested in in you know teaching me, or I could work for you, you know that kind of thing?" And and he went, "Well, you know, I don't, but I, I bet I got another number." And he gave me a number, and it was like three or four numbers down the row. Somebody was like, if you can show up, you're going to work and you're going to work for me and you're going to learn fast. I like that. Absolutely. And I just kind of jumped on a plane and went and he was like, and if you suck, you're gone. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. So that, and that was one of the, you know, probably biggest life changing things there was that. Um, 
And again, having the ability to just jump on that plane and go was, was the only way I could do it. You know, I'm really lucky and blessed in that way to be able to just have done that. Indeed. And uh, then I moved to Seattle where it's a huge thing. And I continued uh, working in glass and making you know my own art and, and selling that a little bit. And then uh, also teaching. I ended up teaching again. And that's where I started really teaching was teaching glass blowing. So it all kind of connects in the end. The thing that I don't get about it is like, regardless, like you can have all the resources in, in the world. You can have all the desire in the world. But how, how, how do you find the time <laughs> like like it's, well, what else do you have to do I, <laughs> you, you, you wake up and you stare at a clock for i don't know what 16 hours on average and then you fall asleep again right sure well that's a long time to stare at a clock so i mean yeah i guess i guess i guess you know like in my case uh my my main needs were met right i i, I had the money to feed myself and, and pay rent and stuff. So it was like, well, let's do something. And right. it's just that, you know, it's just, I'm not one to, to just like watch TV all day. No, no. Like, that, or, well, that, that you know, maybe that's the key. Like, I think that I, I'm not, I'm not one to watch TV all day either, but I, I do like watching TV and I, and I find way more time for it than maybe I should. Um, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I watch plenty of TV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think the big thing for me is that I I'm is that I don't have to um, do it sixteen hours a day. Like I don't have to do a full time job as a glassblower. Right. Right. And and that's really been you know the an enormous benefit, but also a bit of a, a challenge because you know a lot of people's lives get shaped by the job that they had to take or the work right. they had to do. Right. And and I don't think people realize just how much of your decisions get taken away from you that way. I think people do realize it and they're bitter. Well, that's and true. And, and angry. But I also but there, think... But there's also, there's also like pride. Okay. Know? Like sure. people have so many times said to me, oh, you're, you're you know, oh, I, I like your glass, you know, oh, it's so amazing. You're, you're you know professional glassblower and then could you ever imagine having to give this up and i was like yeah absolutely i could give up tomorrow walk away and never do it again and and that's actually kind of what i did when i when i moved back to california i just didn't feel compelled to reconnect with glassblowing and sometimes i miss it a little bit but i think that's my personality and i don't think people i, I think people have trouble walking away from things and if you want to do a lot of things you can't do it all so you got to walk away from everything eventually <laughs> right. or, you, or you'll never have time to start a new thing. Right. And when you talk about time, I'm very easy to give things up and that's key to having time to do other things, you know? Right. Like I'm not a 20 year glassblowing veteran. I'm not that person that worked every day for 20 years. And so I'm not that good and I'm not, I don't have that career and I don't have that fame or that name or, you know, whatever it is like, and I don't know that I ever would have. I don't know if that had anything to do with resources or not. But like, hey, some people, that's their thing, right? They want an identity. They sure. want to be this person. And you don't have time to be that person and that person in a different field and that person in a different field. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, for, for well, let's just say, use since we're talking about glassblowing, I'll use glassblowing as an example. There's only like one one glassblowing guy that everybody knows. So, well, I, in well, Seattle, there's about that every but, like that okay. everybody knows. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> and, and, you know, your chances are you're not going to be that guy. But classes like intro to photography and glassblowing are the ones that when people go to art school, if you're lucky enough to have a glassblowing facility at your school, that's the cool stuff. Like everybody wants to take the elective glass blowing class just so they can get their hands on it once. I never did, but I wanted to. Yeah. And when I toured the school, that was the one place I was just like, oh damn, this is dope. See, th see, that's the other thing. I pursued those. I didn't pursue it as a career. I didn't pursue it as something I was going to do the rest of my life. But when I saw something that was cool, I pursued it. So like I did go to Sweden. A lot of people maybe would have been too afraid to take that moment and go or or you know or maybe they don't have the money to do it or you know yes of course but 
I've run into a lot of people who have opportunities staring them in the face to pursue something that they think is cool or interesting, and they find all kinds of reasons not to do it. That's true. Whereas, well, to me, it's, it's, it's been the, it's the only answer is, well, this is cool. I'm going to go do it. Right. Or I'm going to go try it. Like a good example is I was always interested in, in helicopters. I always thought those are really, really cool. And I remember thinking to myself, well, the chance of me becoming like a professional helicopter pilot, probably pretty slim. And it's really, really expensive uh, to, to train, you know, flying helicopter. So if I do this, there's going to be a point where I'm never going to do it again. And am I going to feel sad about that? Am I going to look back and regret <laughs> that I didn't you know, do more flying or whatever? And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. If I do feel that way, great. At least I did it. At least I tried it. And I've always felt that way about everything. And that's exactly what I did. I actually trained up. I was almost a commercial helicopter pilot. And I realized I didn't want to <laughs> do the job of a helicopter pilot because not because I didn't like the job, but because I didn't want that yeah. level of danger in my life on a daily basis, you know, maybe eight hours a day, because I'm a firm believer, you know, if you do something enough, you're going to screw up <laughs> no matter how good you are. Or even if it's just weather. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And, and I said to myself, like, is it worth being a helicopter pilot to die early? And I, part of what hit me in the face about it was, um, uh -huh. you had to do night flights to get your commercial license. And I remember discussing this with my uh, the, my teachers and my trainers, and, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't like it because it's right. you know it's it's dangerous. Like you know, there's not as many instruments on most of these helicopters. Um, flying at night, oh. it's very easy to get vertigo because you lose your sense of up and down and all kinds of stuff. Like for example, if you lose an engine in a helicopter, you pretty much have to come down fairly straight down, which means you have to quickly identify below you where there's like a field or somewhere where you can you can land the thing without hitting buildings and people and trees and cars and stuff. Well, at night, you know what they tell you to do? <laughs> no. What did, I think they just say aim toward the the dark spaces where you can't see anything. <laughs> that there's a good chance that's a field. <clears throat> but you know chance. what else? There's a good chance that's a lake. I was just gonna say well, water, a, <laughs> right? And and or or trees or you know whatever and. So I, I'll never forget having that conversation because we were preparing to do these these last few, you know, tests before I would sit for my commercial exam. And I was just thinking, like, do I really want to do this? Yeah. And then I'm like, but I've trained so hard. I've spent a lot of money doing it. It's fun. I mean, I do enjoy flying helicopters. It's pretty cool. But yeah. then I was like, you know what? I'm going to put a pause on this until I can answer that question. And I never went back to it. And like I said... Do I regret it? No, because hell, I'm a helicopter pilot and I love doing it. And it was super cool in my twenties. It was, it was like way cool. And then if I never do it again, at least I did it. You know how many helicopters I've piloted? How many? None. Oh, you got to do it, dude. One <laughs> <laughs> of these Actually, days. <laughs> the weird part is, the weird part is when you go to learn to fly a helicopter, I'm, I'm not sure anymore because 9-11 changed a lot of the rules. Oh, okay. But you literally can go in and they sign you up as a student. And once you're a student, they can get in there with you and teach you and immediately give you the controls. So quite literally becoming a student within an hour, you'll be flying a helicopter. You can just grab the controls. Yeah, I mean, they've got dual controls, so they can stop you from. So I guess going back to what we were talking about is I'm okay with with dropping things and never doing it again. And I think a lot of people have real trouble with that. Yeah. Like they spend 10 years doing something. They just can't stop it. They don't want to stop it. Because, again, it, I think it goes back to identity and pride. You know, it's like saying I'm no longer that person. I'm curious what... Like, yeah, I mean, this is a, a nature versus nurture question, I suppose. <laughs> uh, you obviously have the means to do these things. Do you think that the fact that you have the means to do these things is what stimulates the the ability to walk away, cultivates this, this ability? Oh, sure. Because, sure. It's, because it's not most as much people of a are, sacrifice for me. Yeah, like people grow up with the fear of financial insecurity in the back of their mind. Personally, I, I'm like, I'm not even bad off. And all I think about is, all I think about is finances. And it's, uh, 
it, it's it's uh it's maddening, and I don't know that the way I think about things makes it any better. And I don't know that having more means is the only way to solve it. But regardless of whether I have the means or not, I can't get over that programming. You know what I mean? Someone recently was telling me there's, there's, I don't know the name of it, but there's some psychological phenomenon where everybody lives to their means, regardless. Like the people with millions and billions and trillions of dollars just spend it all and they end up in the same exact scenario where they are afraid to lose what they have to, to stop their job because now they've got a $10 million house with a, you know, $1 million mortgage or something like that. Right. And, and it's a, it's a phenomenon. And I, I kind of feel like, well, another sort of one of the main life, actually probably the biggest life changing thing for me kind of programmed me at a fairly young age to not be too worried about that. I think so. So what happened is when my, when my father passed away, I, I was never really brought up to know much about money. Like we didn't, we, you didn't talk about it in my house. Um, I knew we were, we were comfortable, but I didn't, I didn't think anything of the family, you know, company or anything. I just didn't know anything about it. Right. And yeah. I didn't care. I didn't think about it. I was more interested in like on the weekends, I literally would do math problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like as I was as just, one does. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I liked it. You know, I thought it was fun and, uh, and, and origami and things like that. You know, I, I wasn't interested in money per, you know, that, and, and, and like I said, we didn't talk about it at home. Like, I don't even think my mom knew anything about how much my dad made, for example, like they just didn't talk about it. So we weren't raised to be, you know, wealthy or to be, uh, you know, independent, you know, financially independent or anything. We were raised to get a job and, you know, go do something, right? Do the thing. Yeah. So then in my last quarter of college, my father passed away and it changed all the rules because now I saw that not only did he have some money behind him, but like now it was mine. Yeah. Or at least some of it actually funny thing is when it, when he first died, it was actually a pretty small effect. Um, and then the, the company shifted and changed and it became a much larger effect. And so initially it was just sort of like, oh, well, this is definitely going to help, but I still got to get a job. And then after a year or two, it became, oh, well, actually, now I don't need to get a job. Like, <laughs> okay. And that's a really stunning thing when it first dawns on you that like, yes, that you don't have to necessarily plan to do anything except don't be so stupid and spend it all. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you, know, you, you still have to budget. You don't you need a Ferrari. Consider. Right. Well, so what was happening to me at that point was I was in college, majoring linguistics. I was interested in traveling the world and learning languages. That was just sort of my thought, right? I thought I'm going to go work in bars and learn languages. That was my goal. And at the end of my college degree, it was a real popular time where people were going to teach English in Japan. Okay. And so there were programs set up and I was looking into applying to one of these programs and going to Japan to teach English. That was absolutely where I was headed. And my dad dies and I realized I don't necessarily have to teach English because I could probably just go to Japan now. Right. And that was a stunning moment because I was like, well, then what the hell am I going to do in Japan? So do I just go work anyway? But then I remember a lot of people telling me that when you teach English, you often don't learn the local language very well because everybody's speaking English to you all the time. So I was like, okay, my goal is there to learn Japanese. If I teach, it's probably going to hurt my goal. I could just go there, but then what do I do? And I was like, well, I could just go study. Right. And then I was like, why do I want to learn Japanese? And then I'm like, wait a minute. The only reason I picked Japanese is because those those programs brought you to Japan and they were all set up and people were doing it. Yeah. And so I was like, what do I really want to learn? Yeah. <laughs> like, actually, Chinese to me was was more interesting. And so that's what I did. I, I found a random advertisement for a pretty cheap school in China. Okay. And this was like, you got to remember, this is like 93 or four or five. Oh, so yeah. It was early 90s. So like China was cheap. Right. Cheap, 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 cheap. Everything was amazingly cheap. And so I spent some fairly formative years right after college living and studying in China. And any money that I sort of had inherited was just accruing in the bank because I wasn't spending anything. Right. And 
learning to accept some really different living conditions. Yeah. And so I became a pretty simple and pragmatic person in terms of lifestyle, right? Like I didn't think much of like, you know, I didn't need really nice clothes or really nice clean hotels or houses or, you know, anything like that, because I didn't have any of that in China and I got used to it. Right. And that really changed who I was because I still kind of feel like that a little bit. To go back to the whole, like you spend to your means, like I absolutely was not spending to my means in China because I couldn't. Right. Like a meal was like 10 cents. Yeah. It would have been like, crazy. It was just crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was actually difficult because like, you know, sometimes you'd hang out with Chinese people and you'd find out that just hanging out with you, they were using their entire week or two weeks, oh, you know, brutal. sort of budgeted. You know, just to be polite or, or whatever. Money. Yeah. And then, and that actually happened a couple of times and I was like, oh my God. And I, it dawned on me. And I remember this one time I, I had kind of a language trade partner where we would speak Chinese and speak English kind of thing. And I said to her once, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know, isn't this, this restaurant that we meet in like, seems a little bit expensive and her eyes just lit up and she's like yeah yeah don't you think so and i'm like oh no like i only saw her every other week and it's because she was spending all the money she could just to hang out with me. oh man and so i was like i was wondering if you could re recommend a restaurant and she recommended a restaurant it was awesome and it cost a nickel yes <laughs> for like a full meal and beers and coffee and like everything you could ever want and it was just like Oh my goodness. Like I had no idea as a foreigner, you don't see the real cheap places. Right. And this place was, I mean, it was a student place. It was a, Oh my God, it was so cheap. And so, yeah, I couldn't spend a lot of money there without being ridiculous. And, and then I would absolutely alienate people who I'm trying to learn their language. It's counterproductive, super counterproductive. And so that, that really, really sort of shaped me and, and what was important to me. And so I think that was part of it. You know, I never felt the need to spend everything I had. And so even when I came back to the United States and stuff, I, I don't typically live to my means, right? I, I save a lot more than, well, I should say, uh, recently with some of the pandemic stuff, you know, I got caught in some stuff and I'm, yeah. <laughs> the economy's changed a lot now, but you know, for the past 30 years, I've been saving more than I spend. Like, and I think that's rare. But I think that again was was a lot of it was being you know nineteen or twenty in China in the nineties, you know, and just learning that you can live very simply and still enjoy everything. <laughs> you right, know? like you don't need that Mercedes. You could just buy like a Honda or something like mm -hmm. that. You know, like, and I've I've never quite understood that. Like people always wanting to maximize their luxury or you know whatever, but. And I consider myself lucky in that way, but I think a lot of people do do that and, and therefore don't have the time to do a lot of different things right? because they're in that career that's keeping them in that financial situation, whether it's, you know, 1 million, 10 million, 100 million, 1 billion, mm -hmm. they're still stuck. I don't know if that answers your question about time, but <laughs> I was just thinking that in the same situation, I'm not sure if I would deal with it in the same way. I guess it's a different perspective because... Well, I can tell you, my extended family, mm -hmm. we're all kind of a part of this, and we all did it differently, so... Oh, yeah? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You have any horror stories? Well, oh, we definitely had some, uh, <laughs> some, yeah, some horror <laughs> stories, some, some, uh, you know, some, some depressions and yeah, yeah, some yeah. drugs and some, yeah, uh, lots of alcoholism. Also had some, you know, workaholic successful types that, mm -hmm. you know, you always wonder why they're working because they probably don't need it. Uh -huh. Because you got to remember too, what I inherited from my family's business was like less than 3%. Some people got 15, some people have 50, some people have 30, you know, like, I mean, there's, it's all over the map and like, you know, you see the way different people respond. And I've always kind of been a little curious about some of them because by all rights, it's, I don't want to say it's a joke for them to work, but working is not changing anything in their lives okay. unless they enjoy it. And, right. and sometimes you hear them say they don't. <laughs> and you're and like, so like, stop, walk away. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> if you don't, I, I fully understand if you do need it and you do need the money, absolutely. You know, that totally makes sense. I'm not trying to disparage, you know, the need and, and motivation, but if you don't, and you hate what you're doing, like, that's what really mystifies me. 
why are you continuing to do something you hate when you don't need to be doing it? But again, it goes back to, I think, pride and, you know, identity and, and, you know, they are a X, Y, Z, right? They're, they're a lawyer, right? They can't just like quit law. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why the hell not? You know, I mean, then again, on, I, I actually have a relative on the other side of my family. I have a relative who um, he decided he was going to try and become a lawyer, became a lawyer. And within six months was like, this sucks. And quit. Yeah. <laughs> Walked and away. <laughs> and it's awesome. He loves it. Absolutely yeah. loves it. He's a truck driver. And like, and it's like, yeah, that's what you should do. And he and I like, you know, relate pretty well. A lot of times we learn different things, do different things. You know, he went, he went to law school after being. Uh, I forget what he was like a like a technician somewhere for a while, and I was like, I'm going to go to law school. And he went to law school, and, right? And he didn't have the money to do it. He just did it because I guess at his job he had a lot of free time, so he was just like, I could just be studying. Sure. And then he got a job as a lawyer, and uh, yeah, it was hilarious. He said, Yeah, it was miserable. I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah. So I do think it's a personality thing. It's definitely part of it. I'm just wa- yeah. I was just wondering if if it comes from. I it's yeah. Where does it come from? I guess is what I was wondering. I, you know, my, my mom got her PhD in her late sixties. Nice. Um, that's awesome. She, she did a bunch of things along the way. So, you know, I think part of it was just sort of seeing that you could do these things and you could do them anytime. And, right. and, uh, and that was a common thing for us to talk about between my mother and me is just, you could do anything. Why not? You know, and, sure. and examples of people she knew and people, and don't get me wrong. She wasn't a, a an enormous barrier breaker by any means. She <laughs> just like did things that she felt like doing, which, you know, I actually feel like she could have done so much more, uh, but she didn't. Couldn't we all though? Was, I mean, maybe not you, but. no. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, everybody could. But I mean, I, I feel like she was afraid. As a, as a personality, but she still oh, really? did some things. Oh yeah, she's she's very afraid of a lot of things. Well, it sounds like she got over it if she got a PhD in her sixties. Uh, I don't know. I, I I also feel like for her, academia was a comfort zone. Oh, okay. And and I feel like, to be honest, I think the only reason she did it was kind of a pride thing. She was a very good student, and she wanted to be right a success and recognition. Yeah, actually, <laughs> it's, it's, she, she definitely did want some recognition for that. Yeah, but she did it. I mean, still, people even who, who want recognition don't always do that. You know, they no. don't always pursue their goals. So, but I, so I definitely think that there was some inspiration from my mother, um, and just people we talked about a lot. We, you know, like I said, we talked about that kind of stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Straight from the purple owl to the PhD, it was like, do what you want. You'll figure the rest out. Do what you want. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to take that advice. So word up. So, so do you, do you feel successful? <laughs> How do you view success? I guess uh, what would be successful for you? Do I feel successful? Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know if it is. <laughs> I definitely don't feel successful in a, in a American cultural society way. Yeah. At all. But I also was never interested in that. I never wanted the gold watch at the end of the, 50 years of, of service. I, I think maybe because growing up in my, in my hometown, my last name was very recognizable. Uh-huh. I, I don't like being recognized. And so being brought up on stage and given accolades for, you know, whatever, a career or, or whatever, like, like I don't go to my graduation ceremonies. Like I'm not interested in any of that. I never have been. Like I've always kind of hated that. Okay. Uh, which is a little strange because I don't mind getting up in front of a classroom and, and talking for four hours about something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that I have a problem speaking or being in front of people. It's just that whole uh, like recognition for whatever has never been important. And because of that, I've never pursued it. So definitely <laughs> from American society, I'm not like successful, right? I don't have a huge career or a big, I don't know, big pension or, you know, whatever, or like a ton of money that came from my you know, career or something. Right. But I mean, I've always felt really, I'm only competing with myself. So like, I feel very successful when I, when I do stuff, when I learn things. When you level up. Yeah. Yeah. Or just lately I've been doing a lot of fine crochet work and I just really like being able to do it. Like I Dude, do, that is awesome. Well, it's fun. You ever, you ever do a, uh, no, no, I haven't. But on Wednesday, I was talking to an artist and we briefly discussed if I were to do art school again, I would take more fibers classes because I love shit like that. That's cool. And it and it's it's like so accessible 
and very durable, right? Like, so glass was always a pain because I ended up with stuff that I just had to store and it was all fragile. And even if I were to sell it in a gallery, I still had to store it and ship it and do all that kind of garbage. And that, but also the equipment honest, it required to 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 manipulate it is insane. Oh yeah, like if if you sell a vase for five thousand dollars, like you might make you know a thousand or something. Like by the time <laughs> you you buy all the colored glass and you rent the studio or or you own the studio, which is way worse. Yeah, because then you have to maintain it. Yeah, then you got to hire a team of people to work with you. Right. And if they're skilled, they're gonna not they're not gonna be cheap. So I mean, you're looking at a day of you know several thousand dollars. And yeah. if it doesn't work, which often happens, mm-hmm. you know, you might have to try to make it you know ten times before you successfully make one that you really like and are are willing to to sell. So it might take you two days to to end up with something that you that you wanted to do. So, you know, yeah, you sell it for five grand. Then the then the gallery takes half of that. Uh huh. You get two thousand five hundred dollars, but maybe it cost you two thousand dollars to actually get it produced. There you go. You know, and like go buy some more yeah, glass. <laughs> it's not cheap. So there's that. And then the storage and the, you know, moving it around and then marketing and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just so much more effort. So yeah, I, I didn't get back into glass blowing partially for that reason. But fiber arts is like, you know, it's, it's like you and a loom or you and, and a crochet hook, which is pretty much just a stick with a hook. It's very accessible. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely, I love it. Like it's, it's so awesome that I can just cram this thing in my pocket. Uh-huh. And pull it out and continue working on it. And, you know, and it's, and it, but it also has this, this capacity for almost infinite complexity, which can be very stunning and also very challenging. Like it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I would, if, I, if I were you, I would just go today, go get a hook. Just and, go, go to the store and get some yarn. Yeah. And that's the thing. It is that easy. You know, <laughs> like I said, just do what you want to do. Like that's good. It's good advice. You know, it's good advice. Especially stuff that's so accessible like that. Right. But so I feel successful. What, what, what are you making? What are you making? I'm sorry. I'm t- I know that you're going back to the success thing and we'll get back to that. But <laughs> what, what are you, what are you crocheting? What are you making? Um, well, right now I've been working on uh, primarily doilies. I mean, so I, I don't know a lot of the formal world of this because a lot of it I've just sort of done on my own. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that the almost high art of crochet um, is actually doilies because they use extremely fine thread. Yeah very small hooks and every one of those little knots was tied so not tied but you know it was it was hooked through and pulled and i've come to see it as like you know the louvre of crochet like it's like <laughs> the the fine art it's like the showpiece and i think that's why doilies were what they were they're just a it's just a round thing so it's a very convenient way to crochet because it's round yeah but there's not a lot of real purpose for it except to just like sit on a table and put something on maybe yep um and and i think that's why they evolved was that it was just like oh i just want to show you the patterns that i've come up with or the the ways that i can do this or how fine i can make these knots you know Um, like every art form seems to have that you know like like ceramics right it's the tallest thinnest thing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. well i kind of feel like that's the doily in glass blowing it was like venetian style goblet making was is often and i that's one of was my specialty is i ended up uh working with that a lot and teaching that because i was attracted to that so i guess i kind of came to doilies in that same way i don't know the formal world so maybe i'm all totally wrong about that Uh but that's what it seems to me and so you know i've just been doing doilies and uh slowly learning a lot about all kinds of crazy little patterns and stitches and it's a lot of fun and it's super tedious, which I guess that appeals to my mammalian brain somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. Mainly doilies, you know. Word up. If I have a goal for it, really, is I'd like to get into my own designs. and my. So I'm, I'm still kind of learning. So I'm still mostly doing other people's patterns. I'm just looking for the most complicated and complex patterns that I can find so that I can learn different techniques and then hopefully apply that to my own design. But that's like way down the line. I only stick with things for about two years, so probably won't. Probably won't. <laughs> You're not going to get there, you don't think. <laughs> You'll move on to something else. Yeah. Kite, kite making. <laughs> kite making. I guess that's what I, I would see as success is do what you want to do to the level you want to do it to, and then, and then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> don't get stressed about it. Yeah, I mean, the rest of it is just keeping up with other people's expectations. Yeah. Let me tell you, there's always going to be somebody better 
There's always going to be somebody worse. There's always going to be somebody critical of everything you do. And there's always going to be someone that loves what you do, no matter how bad it is. It's <laughs> just that way. I don't know. I tell you, the older I get, the more my friends say things like, huh, I thought when I became X that I'd be all like, yeah. And now I'm like, okay, now what? Yeah. You know, like I thought when I became a surgeon, like that was going to be it. But I get the rest of my life to live. And being a surgeon now is normal for me right so it isn't you know it isn't this you know people always think like you, you're going for some goal and when you get there everything's gonna be perfect and it's like nah so i just like i said two years i usually just kind of move on find something else well <laughs> as, as far as uh, identities go you know what you say when people ask you what you do i, I thought of two things uh, you can try this on you can just say i'm a renaissance man <laughs> is that too cheesy no, no, I I feel it arrogant because again I I see that that's like a like I I feel like that's a compliment, right? Like not everybody does. He's a real Renaissance I, I would feel man. Arrogant. I would feel arrogant saying that. So yeah, be, but I I jokingly have been accused of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've got another one too. I've got another one too. Yeah. You could be the chairman of the dream team of the zombie apocalypse survival squad. <laughs> yeah that okay yeah that's a pretty definitely. good one right Chairman of the dream team and the zombie survival squad i like it you know because you could you could like make glassware for them and craft doilies yeah or blankets you, or well, whatever you need a doily to put your glassware on first of all i mean that's obvious right sure you what, what else are you gonna do you can't just put a glass on a table <laughs> how uncivilized no but <laughs> communication skills are very important yeah you know that's going to be important in the post post-apocalyptic society and uh, i don't know so much about helicopter piloting but anyway there's a lot of stuff do you have any other uh job work pearls of wisdom i think that we've probably covered the whole success thing for the show i don't know i just quote my mom right not the first person to say it, but just, you know, love what you do and everything else will follow, right? All right. You know, work a day in your life. <laughs> Thank you, Eric, for being on the show. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Eric. Um, I'm sure some of you have a lot to say. I think it's easy to say that money is the only thing that makes this lifestyle possible. But I don't think that that is entirely true. I mean, I don't want to diminish the role of money and security, but it isn't the only factor. That said, I'm reminded of my conversation with Ed for the 26 Days Part 2 episode a few weeks ago. We talked about my desire for recognition, while Eric talks about his disinterest in that. That pretty much falls in line with Ed's assertion that if you don't need to worry about money, most of the other stuff doesn't matter. But it's also what you do with the time and money. I think that, especially considering his age when Eric came into his money, it's remarkable that he didn't crash and burn. I also think it's remarkable that he has dedicated his life to learning. Yes, it seems that before he even had a chance to realize it, he was conditioned to go with his heart, as it were. And lots of folks are taught to do exactly the opposite as children or during their high school years. Maybe people who don't have to worry about money are the only ones raised that way. But then again, Eric did say his dad was a traditional go-to-college-and-get-a-job-style company man. I'm just saying that I have no idea how I would deal with being financially independent. I'm not sure if I would have been a destructive force or a creative one. I know plenty of creative and enlightened people with and without means. I also know some disgusting and deplorable people on both ends of the financial spectrum and everywhere in between. What can I say? And Ed, I can hear you freaking out as I say this, but... Just for a second, I'm going to take money out of the equation. And I'll say that the chances you take don't need to be about flying to another country to blow glass with an expert or to learn another language with the natives of that country. It can be on a smaller scale, and it doesn't need to happen every two years, but maybe taking more leaps could improve your life. That is, if it's something that you really want to learn or do. In the coming weeks, you'll hear my episode with Yost, who left a solid job with a solid company to start working for himself on his own schedule. It can be as simple as that. I say simple, but it's major for most people to give up security and familiarity with or without a safety net. And it's not an option for a lot of people, maybe even most. I still ask myself what I want to be when I grow up every goddamn day. 
and I still don't know how to answer it. I still don't know what I would retrain myself as if I were to get a certificate or something. It's not that I'm not interested in anything, but also that I'm afraid of making the wrong decisions because time is limited and my hair is falling out and I'll be dead soon. And yeah, I want to maximize my return on investment. I guess it's obvious that I wouldn't be so concerned with that if money wasn't a factor. With or without the money, I wish I had a little bit more of the eagerness or willingness to go get it like Eric does, because as it stands, I'll probably just go out and try to grab a job that is remarkably similar to one of the jobs I had in the past. In essence, I'll be breaking my own stagnation with another form of stagnation. Is that the curse of my programming or weakness and impatience on my part? You're a thoughtful person. I'm sure you have something to say about it. Why don't you send your thoughts to mail at feelfreetodeviate.com and I'll address them in the future. Maybe you want to make a recording and send it in. Perhaps I'll include your clip in a future show. Thanks for being on the show, Eric. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate your time. Also, I appreciate you, dear listener. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want more Feel Free to Deviate-related content, head on over to Instagram or YouTube, whatever social media you use, to see my promo material. Like, comment, engage, or share it. Or tell someone about the show if you think they might get something out of it. I love new listeners. If you are feeling especially generous, head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash feel free. That's just feel free, no deviations. It's a quick, easy, and painless way to help offset the cost of running the show while simultaneously keeping Jim Turbert caffeinated, which costs more than you might think. As I mentioned before, Yoast is coming up in two weeks, and Yvonne will be up after that. Yoast creates stories, mostly for exhibitions in the museum world, and Yvonne works for a gigantic database company. She used to do other stuff. We're all about diversity here at Feel Free to Deviate, even if I do lean towards the creative side of things. Thanks again for listening. You're the best, especially if you made it this far. I'm going to go look for some dark spots so I can land safely. I'll see you in two weeks.